In episode 36 of Mosin at Large, the note-taker versus braille display and smartphone or PC debate is raging. Sonos has made some big announcements. Should you purchase or upgrade to the Sonos Arc? I do some recording on my new Zoom F6 portable recorder, and we look ahead to WWDC. Mosin at Large Podcast. If you'd like to make a contribution that might be included on Mosin at Large, you can phone the listener line. That number in the United States is 864-60-MOSIN, 864-606-6736. You can also make an audio or written contribution by email, jonathan, J-O-N-A-T-H-A-N, at mushroomfm.com. We play a selection of the contributions we receive every week. It would be helpful if your message is concise due to the volume of contributions we receive, and your contribution may be edited for brevity and clarity. A reminder that to help you navigate this long podcast, it is segmented by chapter. All the good podcast apps support chapters. That means you can skip forward and back between sections. First of all, a COVID-19 update from New Zealand. I hope that you are doing okay in these difficult times. I can't stress enough, and I say this to my staff as well. It is okay not to feel okay sometimes. These are really difficult, uncertain times. So cut yourself some slack. And I know I hear from people during the week who tell me that, you know, these times are really tough. There's uncertainty. And one kind of can be a little bit immune in the news when you just hear these numbers But remember, when we hear about these thousands of deaths around the world and people who contract this virus, which when it really gets hold, is a dreadful thing to go through, even if you recover from it. So every single number that we hear about represents an individual who has a family that is impacted. It is an enormous tragedy. You know, it's an enormous global tragedy and it's tough. I mentioned the mask question last week, and uh, this is another one that's sort of percolating away here in New Zealand. What we've got now is we had uh, several days where we had no COVID-19 cases at all. And for the last week, we've had no more than two cases in any one day. And all of those cases are linked to clusters that they already know about. So there's no community transmission so far. And We are looking at waking up the economy possibly this week. There'll be a decision made about that tomorrow, and people are quite excited about that. Uh, You are still going to be encouraged to work from home if you want to and if you can. And what I've uh, said to my staff is, look, we can serve people just as well using electronic means. So go into the office if you need a break, because a lot of people are working in suboptimal conditions, aren't they? This COVID-19 thing has taken them by surprise. So they've been working from dining room tables and sometimes you've got a working couple trying to work from the same dining room table or cobble together a makeshift home office. So it's not pleasant for everybody. So for those people who want to go into the office, obviously we'll make sure there are appropriate physical distancing measures and precautions in place, sanitizers, that sort of stuff. But we'll deal with the public, uh, serve the public, um, remotely still for a little while longer while things settle. So as we look to wake the economy up, of course, this mask discussion rages on. And I want to stress, I, I'm not qualified to make an, an, a comment either way. I'm just frustrated that the evidence seems to be so conflicting on something so important. And maybe we just can't know. So people are being asked here, health officials are being asked here about the masks and they commissioned a report uh, 
Um, that was commissioned looking at whether we should make masks compulsory in New Zealand when the economy wakes up. What it found was that Singapore made public mask wearing compulsory on April the 15th. And after that, the daily number of cases was still higher than prior to the enforcement of that rule. There is some suggestion that wearing masks can make it worse. The review says that the use of masks made of other materials, like cotton fabric, in a community setting hasn't been well evaluated and there was no current evidence to make a recommendation for or against their use in this setting. So, you know, the idea of having to wear masks on public transport and confined public spaces, it says here, and I'm quoting from the report, the physical properties of a cloth mask reuse, the frequency and effectiveness of cleaning and increased moisture retention may potentially increase the infection risk. The effectiveness of public mask wearing was speculative, it continued, and would probably intercept the transmission link. Then it goes on, cloth masks may be cost-effective, but there is no clinical evidence in the COVID-19 context to suggest that they are effective as source control. The rates of all infection outcomes were highest in the cloth mask arm. The results caution against the use of cloth masks, the report says. So I don't know. It's really important that we get this right, isn't it? And yet I hear this, you know, I hear this from the UK. I hear it from all over the place that the evidence for the use of these masks is fleeting. I know that there's a tendency among public health authorities to give people the masks or tell them to use the masks because people feel like they're doing something. They have some control. But, you know, it's like the stories that Bonnie's told me of doing the air raid drills under your desk in America. I mean, they wouldn't have made a difference if America got nuked. <laughs> so sometimes these things are not necessarily evidence-based. I would just love to know one way or the other because it's a, it's a really big question, especially as people start going out here in this country. Now, the note-taker debate rages on whether you need a note-taker these days, a dedicated blindness one, probably something based on Android, or whether a smartphone and a Braille display would do the same job. Now, there's a tweet here from Bruce Taves, and he says, the way I see it, if blind people want dedicated note-takers, then there's the need for it. The I don't see a need for it, so it's stupid mentality taken by so many blind people in matters like these really angers me. I have been guilty of it myself, he says. And I actually have a lot of sympathy with that. I wrote a blog post a few years ago about people dissing the blindness-specific products which meet a need. But there are two things that I would come back on regarding that tweet. One, it's possible that people may not be making an informed decision. I can remember Bruce Taves himself, in fact, Bruce Taves himself mentioned on the 100th episode of Main Menu that I did, and it must have been about 2002 that I did the 100th episode of Main Menu, getting the numbers right. He mentioned that for a long time he held out on getting a Windows computer because he didn't think he would be able to use it. And then he got his Windows computer and he used the JAWS training. And I think he went through, he said, back issues of main menu. 
and kind of learned how to use Windows, and he's never looked back. And, of course, many of the things that uh, he can do on his computer would not have been possible in DOS, including listening to internet radio itself. So the first thing we have to establish, I think, is are people feeling the way they do, who do feel this way, because of fear of the unknown? So if people make an informed decision, that's that's great. The second thing I would say is most people don't buy note takers with their own money. And if you do buy a note taker with your own money, it's your money and it's your own damn business what you spend it on. End of story. And if it works for you and you have, you know, $6,000 or whatever to plonk on a note taker, then you should do it if you see the need for it. Because that's freedom, man, and that's capitalism. But on the other hand, you do have a lot of note takers, the majority of them purchased by government entities. Now, here in New Zealand, we're gradually transitioning to a model of individualized funding where you get an allocation of money, a sort of a dollop of funds to mitigate the costs of your disability. And it's up to you how you spend it. Now, in that situation, if you knew that you had a finite amount of money to spend, would you spend some of that resource or quite a bit of that resource potentially on a note taker product? Or would you hunker down a little bit and learn how to really master a braille display with a smartphone because your money would last a lot longer and you'd be able to just swap out the uh, smartphone for new functionality? So what I'm saying is I think that in the case of note-taker products, the fact that people can have them without actually having to pay for them distorts the market and almost distorts the discussion about whether there really is demand for them or not. And if you wouldn't buy one with your own money, do we not have to really have a think about whether we're responsibly using government money when there are viable alternatives available for many people? To contrast that discussion, the Victor Reader Stream, for example, I've never owned one and I've never seen the point of them. But they're a really popular product. And I think as long as people want to buy them, they should be around because just because I don't have a need for it, it doesn't mean they shouldn't be there. So I thoroughly support that. If people want to carry another device around and potentially get confused about what device is my book on? Is it on my stream or is it on my phone? Then go for it. You know, that's, you know, obviously people see utility in having them. So long may they continue as long as people want them. But the note taker argument is a bit more complex, I think. And on that subject. Hello, Jonathan and everybody. This is Beth from Virginia, where it's about 82 degrees Fahrenheit, a little toasty for yours truly. I'm a little bit skewed in my perception here because I have not tried Ulysses. But with the iPhone and Braille, I don't do Braille screen input. I have a Braille Edge, which probably is not to its most recent version. And of course, the Edge is not made anymore. But Braille and the iPhone is dodgy, as you would say. It, it just, it's clunky. It, I'm, glad it, I'm glad it's available. It works, but there are times when I can't find the beginning of the document, even with the space L. There have been times when, I can't remember, I, it might have been in the notes app. You get a whole bunch of other things besides your document, 
that show up and you can't find the darn document. And I just love, I don't have a note taker right now, but let's take this Braille Edge. It has a very simple, I should say simplified note taker. I just go to a file and it's just there. There's nothing else. It's just a clean slate and I can just Braille to my heart's content. And then, of course, with the iPhone and Braille, sometimes it seems to un or disconnect. And then when it does that, you lose part of what you've written. If you get a phone call or a notification or something, then you got to putz around and erase these weird characters, even though you don't get updates as often with the note takers. I still haven't gone to, what is it, 13 or is it 13? I have not. First of all, I may be getting a new iPhone in the not-too-distant future. I have an XR right now. But there have been so many problems with voiceover and other things with 13. I haven't even switched. So what's the point of having these, these frequent or more frequent updates, 14.1.2.8.5, you know, if things are going to get screwed up? I, and But with the note-takers, it's a lot simpler than that. Good to hear from you, Beth, and I have a number of things to respond to there. The first thing is that the reason why you're getting frustrated with the space with L command is that space with L is not and has never been how you get to the top of a document in iOS. In iOS, space with L will get you to the top of the screen. And so, yes, if you're in the Notes app, or for that matter, Ulysses, anywhere where there is content in addition to your document, Space with L is going to get you out of your document. You're going to be way at the top of the screen and dealing with the various menus and things that might be above your edit field. And similarly, Space with Dots 456 will get you to the bottom of the screen. So if you're not using the right command, it's not surprising that the outcome you will get will not be what you want. I don't know the Braille Edge at all, so I don't know how to do it on that. But on the focus displays, you press the little button above the rocker bar on either side and pressing it once gets you to the top of the document and keeps you in your document and pressing it a second time gets you to the bottom of the document and it's just a toggle and it's really easy to get to the top and bottom of your file. If you don't like that behavior, though, you can change it. One of the really nice things about iOS Braille is that you can customize every single command now. And there's a lot of flexibility to get the exact user experience that you want. So I'd really encourage you to go in there and have a good play with the commands and customize it to the way that you want I know, for example, that when I open a document in Ulysses, focus is immediately placed in the edit field. I tap the button on my brow display to give the edit field edit status, and then off I go. I mean, it couldn't be simpler. I also have a series of Siri shortcuts that I've set up. So quite often during the week, I have ideas or I read stories that are of interest and I can't remember everything and I want to make a note of them in my Mosin Explosion or Mosin at Large folder in Ulysses. And all I have to do is say to Siri, new explosion story, and instantly I'm popped into the document in the edit field. In that particular case, it's ready for me to type. 
I don't have to do anything else except say to Siri, new explosion story, and off it goes. I also have a similar command that just says new document. And when I issue that command, Ulysses opens. I'm in a blank document in the Ulysses inbox and off I go. So it really couldn't be any simpler. Undoubtedly, there are moments when Braille support has not been good, when it's gone through bad patches. Some of it, I think, does relate to the Braille display. I have heard people say before that Braille Edge support may not be as robust with iOS as some other displays. So that might be something you would need to talk to the manufacturer about, although I don't know. I've not used a Braille Edge myself. But, you know, every software has bugs. Sure, iOS 13 has had its bugs, but it's also introduced some absolutely fantastic features. I wouldn't want to go back down to iOS 12 in a heartbeat because of all the configurable keyboard commands, the voice control, the ability to really use the device as a content creation device and query information about the text formatting and that kind of stuff. And, you know, I think you would be looking at the past with incredibly rose-tinted glasses. And I can tell you that as a former product manager for a note-taker. I can remember, for example, the absolute heartbreak that Braille Notes used to cause because of a very poor word converter. And anyone using the Braille Note at the time when I was involved in the Braille Note will remember this all too clearly. Sometimes there would be an error which would result in a Word document that was imported into the Braille Note just completely sort of obliterating itself. Every piece of software on the planet has bugs, including Windows and Mac OS and any computer that's ever existed. But I still maintain that If you were buying these things yourself, could anybody seriously suggest, if you were plunking down your own cash, that the massive difference in cost between a full note taker and an iPhone and a Braille display is justified, particularly when it's so easy to swap out the iPhone for something new? I also think, though, that this illustrates two things. One is that there really is a problem with lack of training for using iOS effectively with a Braille display. And the other is that Apple's documentation is shocking. Really, Apple's done an amazing job overall with VoiceOver, but their documentation is absolutely horrible, and they need to rectify that. I do hope that somebody one day might come out with a comprehensive tutorial on using iOS effectively with a Braille display, maybe even specifically with Ulysses, because as far as I'm concerned, it beats the pants of any note taker. Hi, Jonathan. This is Brett Halley and Jaguar calling from Maui, Hawaii. Jaguar. I wanted to follow up on the F6 uh, setup. When you go through this the first time, you will need to get Ira or a sighted person online for the very first time you do it um, because it does come up and want you to select a language and set the date and time and stuff. So once you do that, then Gary's instructions for navigating the menu and um, you know connecting to Bluetooth and all that work, great. But the very first time you take it out and do the setup, you will need... Um, some sighted assistance. Fortunately, it's not um, terribly complicated, and I 
successfully got Ira to assist with mine. But once you do that, then again, the rest of uh, Gary's instructions work terrific. Oh, my goodness. The Zoom F6, the the portable recorder of choice of the Mosin explosion. And all thanks to Gary O'Donoghue. Yes, that's a very good point. Thank you, Brett. Also, one little amendment that I would make to Gary's instructions is the menus in the Zoom F6 do wrap. So Gary was talking about pressing the down arrow key five times when you pop into the menu. You can actually just push it once up. To, to go up to the same option, which is just yeah, fewer keystrokes and potentially fewer things to go wrong. We'll talk more about that a little bit later when I play some recordings from the F6. Petra says, as I've said often, I really enjoy your shows. Well, I like the fact that you say that often, Petra. It's always nice to get positive reinforcement. She says, we don't always agree. What? Oh, but that makes the conversation more interesting. I suppose it does. About tipping. I have always understood that tipping was a way to express either satisfaction or dissatisfaction with the service. I have never felt that I had to leave a certain percentage. I base my tips on the service I receive. I have left just a penny to show that I didn't just forget to leave a tip, but that I was totally dissatisfied. Good for you. I have also tipped airport people both at baggage check-in and especially when someone walks me to the plane or baggage claim. The people who meet and assist you are not airline employees, I don't think, although the baggage check-in people are. It is a bad thing about tipping that people, including me, believe that it helps your bag get get on your flight if you tip. Yes, indeed. One of my favourite airline jokes, yes, this is a classic traveller's joke too, is a man goes to the check-in counter and says, I want this bag to go to Chicago, this one to Los Angeles, and this one to New York. The ticket counter agent says, I'm sorry, sir, we can't do that. And the customer says, why not? That's what you did last time. I do tip, though based on service. On note takers, says Petra, I think that people like myself who are not as confident with technology as you are, are more comfortable with using one device, a note taker rather than two, an iPhone and a braille display. I have Judy Dixon's book about writing in all kinds of devices and someday I plan to learn everything I can from it. It seems that even with the time we have been under house arrest, I still haven't found that much time. I'm planning to uh, go and get my nails done this week. And this sub- this email was written about a week ago. So hope your nails are all in good nick now, picture. And I don't expect any bad consequences. Oh, and she says, I <laughs> I hope you've noticed no double spaces between sentences. Thanks for the correction. Oh, you're welcome. Another thing occurred to me about the double spaces between uh, sentences thing after the show. Imagine what damage that does to people who tweet that way, just squandering their precious 280 characters on two spaces when, you know, one is the convention these days. Great email as ever, Petra. Thank you very much. Hope you're doing well. Hey, Jonathan. It's Bryant here from Idaho. Hi, Hope Bryant. Hope you're staying safe and doing well. I have a BrailleSense Polaris, which was given to me by I Can Connect. It's a company that supplies technology to deafblind individuals. I rather like the Polaris. I use it quite a bit on a daily basis. I'm one of those people who thinks that Note-takers do still have their place, although 
I would never be able to purchase one on my own, given how expensive they are. The one complaint I have about the Braille Sense Polaris, uh, as well as the Bronote uh, line of products, is that they run obsolete versions of Android. Right now, the Braille Sense Polaris is on Lollipop. It got a major update about a month ago, the Polaris did, and I was expecting them to update their Android operating system within the Polaris because I think, they, I think they're capable of doing that from what I've heard, but they haven't. And I don't understand that because there's going to come a time where apps are not going to work with older versions of Android. I also wanted to ask a question about the iPhone SE. I have a iPhone 11 Pro. Besides the Touch ID and the um, smaller size of the iPhone SE, would it be worth getting an iPhone SE 2 if you already have an iPhone 11? Thanks, Brian. No, is the short answer. Obviously, you do get the Touch ID, and that's a physical point of difference. But other than that, everything that the iPhone SE 2 has, the iPhone 11 has, and possibly better. So the camera system is significantly better in the iPhone 11 Pro. That may or may not matter to you. Um, It might not matter to many blind people who have fairly simple camera needs but no i wouldn't see the need for you're not going to get anything unique other than touch id by also having an iphone se2 you'd have to be seriously geeky i mean even i'm not getting an iphone se2 (laughs) um because because really there's there's no different it's essentially just an iphone 8 with improved specs and that really does meet a need i think apple has absolutely hit it out of the park with what they did in the iphone se2 and it does look like they are looking at the budget end of the market for a bit this year before the shock comes and we get the new expensive iPhone 12 range. For example, the Apple team announced over the week that there's a new MacBook Pro 13-inch, and the significance of that announcement is that it is the end of the butterfly keyboard. I just shudder to think how many customers Apple lost because of that butterfly keyboard. When Heidi was busy being a student, my oldest daughter, her Mac sort of exploded and it was going to cost quite a bit to repair it new motherboard and she'd had it for a while and so the bank of dad decided that it would finance a new computer for her and when we looked at Mac, so she had the Mac and so the logic would be just get another Mac, restore from a backup and you'll be up and running again. But the butterfly keyboard was such a turnoff that it actually made a Windows user out of her and a very good decision too because those butterfly keyboards have had so many repair issues, but now they're gone. So Apple are doing some really interesting things at the moment. Here's an email from Tristan Clare in Australia. She says, hi, Jonathan, I'm writing to discuss an interesting point you made on your podcast about parasites Those blind people who have benefited from the advocacy of previous generations and go around saying that there is no discrimination and that advocates are extremists. I'm not writing to defend them exactly, but I know where that kind of thinking comes from. And I don't think it's all from provocateurs that are looking for an argument. When in university in the late 1990s, I took a couple of women's studies courses as part of my BA. 
In one class, we read an article by a prominent second-wave feminist, one who had fought tirelessly for women's rights in the 1970s, accusing third-wave feminists and women of my generation of sitting back and enjoying the benefits of feminism without doing anything to advance the cause ourselves. It was one of the most hotly debated articles in the entire course. As one of the youngest students in the class, I remember being truly mystified and asking, but what would she have us do? Women's rights are all sorted now. Age and experience has taught me that there is still a gender pay gap, that sexual harassment is being exposed in all levels of the workforce, and that it is harder, but not impossible, for women to smash the glass ceiling and achieve top corporate positions. But that wasn't information I had access to as a callow youth of 20. Is it not possible then that a blind person growing up at a time when access to education, accessible material and equity is better than it's ever been, a gifted, well-spoken individual surrounded by a loving family a person who has no trouble making friends and who got the first job they went with would see the world as a place without discrimination. That was me until I tried to enter the workforce. I honestly thought that blindness was a characteristic, that it didn't matter to anyone else, that with my two degrees, I was a pretty hot commodity and that I would have a job three months after I left university. The time I spent either unemployed or underemployed taught me about discrimination the way nothing else could. Fortunately for me, I now have a decent job that I enjoy. But if I had gotten that job straight out of university, I would have been ignorant of that kind of discrimination. I never want to go through it again, but it gave me a perspective that perhaps younger people who haven't yet encountered that particular struggle haven't had yet. So what I'm saying is not all people who say there is no discrimination against blind people are anti-advocacy. Perhaps they just haven't personally encountered it yet. Fantastic email, Tristan. Thank you so much. I really don't have anything to add to that. It's a very good point that you make. Well, I think it was about three weeks ago on the show that Gary O'Donoghue unleashed something horrible when he told us all about the Zoom F6 and the success that he was having with that recorder. And if you go back and listen to the Mosin at Large podcast, episode 35, Gary was kind enough to do a demo for us where he takes us through a physical description of the recorder, a look at the iOS app, and a pretty compelling demonstration of the way that you can clean up a recording, either that's recorded too soft or way too loud, with the 32-bit float technology. So the combination of those two factors, the 32-bit float and the accessible iOS app, was just too good an opportunity for me to pass up. So I did order one after a bit of research. It took me about... I don't know, 48 to 72 hours, I think, to finally take the plunge, and I did. And this has been sitting here for a while, but Richard was able to come over. We were allowed to extend our bubble a little bit in Level 3 lockdown. And so Richard was here, we unboxed it, and 
I'm sitting on the couch now recording this on the Zoom F6. I've got my uh, one of my Q2U microphones from Samson plugged into this, which comprises the recording kit that I have put together for portable use. So it's not quite the audio quality of my Heil PR40, but it's still pretty good. And what I'll actually do is when I finish talking here, all curled up on the USB-powered recliner, yeah, we've got this sort of smart couch here with USB outlets and power outlets and all the chairs and they recline and do cool things. So it's nice to be talking to you from that with the Zoom F6 in my lap. But I will take it down to the studio and plug in my Heil PR40 microphone. We have a pair of those in the studio and you'll be able to hear what that sounds like on the F6. Um, these mics are way cheaper I think about a seventh of the price of the ones we use in the studio. But uh, it's it's a very nice recorder. I don't have too much else to add to Gary's fantastic description. While it is subjective, I personally really do prefer the layout of this recorder to the H6. You know, I bought it with lots of good intentions of getting out there and doing some podcasts, particularly in my new job. I was going to use it for my work podcast and do lots of recordings in people's offices and that kind of stuff. And the iPhone just wasn't cutting it. I wanted something a little better. So that's why I bought it. And then, of course, COVID-19 came along. And so the Zoom H6 sat in its box unused for quite some time. And I found that when I took the H6 out again, it just didn't feel intuitive. I, I would have to had to keep reminding myself how the thing worked just didn't like the layout of it this on the other hand makes a lot of sense to me with the screen on the front uh, it's pretty minimalist Um, Bonnie described it when she held the recorder in her hands as a utilitarian kind of recorder and I think that's right and then on the the below the screen you've just got these three very clear buttons for the transport functions the inputs I don't think they're too small at all Um, they're logically laid out I understand the relationship between the the gain knobs on the on the front of the unit and the inputs themselves. It, it all makes sense to me. I do hope that we can get some more functionality from Zoom for the iOS app, but man, it is progress. It really is cool to have that degree of control. Just little things like being able to turn phantom power on when you need it. For example, I have a uh, microphone that I talked about Uh, on this show a few weeks ago the mb77 from sony and it's a lavalier mic so that when i'm doing video calls on zoom or microsoft teams and i've been doing a lot of those in my home studio and office i can swing the microphone away on the big boom arm which obstructs the view of the camera and use this lavalier microphone and it uses phantom power and Now, with the iOS app, I can just enable Phantom Power if ever I want to use that mic, so it's pretty cool. What I will do now is take this recorder down to the studio, and I will plug in my Heil PR40 microphone, and we will um, probably do a little bit of tweaking and repair with this, because the Heil PR40 mics are notoriously low in gain. You you really have to give it quite a bit of gain to get a decent... uh, level out of the Heil PR40. It's a bit like the Shure, uh, what do they call that model? But there's a Shure microphone that everybody loves that has a similar issue. You don't get a lot of uh, a lot of volume out of it. So 
That's fine. Uh, that's one of the benefits of 32-bit float recording, of course, is that it really doesn't matter uh, how quiet it is when you record because you can take care of it after the fact. So we'll go down to the studio and plug in one of the studio mics. And I'm in the studio now. The marvels of time travel. So you just shot down here. Now, what I have now is the Heil PR40 microphone that we use on this podcast all the time. And normally it would be plugged into my mixer, my Allen and Heath Z22FX mixer, but it is plugged directly right now into the Zoom F6. While I'm blithering on about it, the construction of this thing is pretty cool. I mean, it's just, it's just solid. It's very reassuring. You kind of feel like you could, not that I'd try, but you feel like you could drop this thing down the stairs or on a bit of concrete. You might shatter the screen if it fell the wrong way. But it does feel like a really solid piece of equipment. And when I got it set up and Richard set the time and date and everything for me, he said, Dad, this is the coolest piece of equipment that you own, which is nice. And it's actually Richard's birthday today as the show is put together. So he got a bit of a present because he got a almost new H6. I only bought the H6 back in January and haven't used it much at all. And he also got my microphone capsules and things because the H series microphone capsules, and I think they work in some of the F recorders as well, do not work with the Zoom F6. And I'm kind of relaxed about that. I'll just have to get uh, a few more mics for different situations. But I'm absolutely thrilled with this. Just being able to go in and have a really good fossick around with all the different menus. I love that. Hopefully we can get Zoom to do a little bit more. It'd be great if there was an option that says leave the Bluetooth on whenever the dongle's connected. Obviously, you'd want that to be a toggle, but I would love that so that you could just turn the recorder on and then run the app on your iPhone and be in. That would be good. Currently, I've got a little cheat sheet that Richard helped me put together that has some common functions that you can't get to from the app, such as being able to turn on the Bluetooth function so you can get at the iPhone app and turn it into a... USB storage device so you can get your recordings onto your computer by just plugging it in as a mass storage device. I've also got a cheat sheet to do the commands to make this a USB audio interface, which is something I haven't had to play with yet. So lots still to do, but I am thrilled with this purchase. It really is cool. So that, that is the Zoom F6. And do check out Gary's very good coverage of that in episode 35 of Mosin at Large. Mosin at Large Podcast. Gary O'Donoghue himself is on the email. He says, like you, I use a Braille with an uppercase B, good man, Gary, display in conjunction with an iPhone. And I wouldn't go back to a dedicated note taken now, but I do have some sympathy with Beth. For example, it is still incredibly annoying using the native mail app on the iPhone with Braille. More often than not, the cursor routing keys don't bring the cursor to the position you want it to be. Often notifications interrupt Braille input, and I don't want to turn them off. And sighted people don't have their typing interrupted by a notification. The final point I'd make is that Apple is so uncommunicative that we never know whether Braille will be broken with the next release or not. It's a pretty precarious position for blind people to be put in. Absolutely fair comments there. 
And one of the things that I really do appreciate about Android is that you can go on that eyes free list and be absolutely deluged with email messages. But the point is that developers who actually make decisions about what will happen to the screen reader are present on that eyes free list and they will engage with you and you can provide feedback. And I think that's fantastic. And it is a shame that Apple is doing all this great work, but they are so secretive. And it's also true that there have been periods where blind people have reported quite serious Braille bugs during the beta cycle, only to have them not fixed in time for the official release. And that's very unfortunate. I've heard people castigating people who test iOS and saying, why don't you report? Yeah, I mean, it takes two. It's a relationship. You of course, should report these things. But equally, they got to be fixed by the people capable of fixing them, right? So you're right. That's a, that's a very balanced perspective there, Gary. I appreciate that. Here's Amber from Missouri. Or is it Missouri? I think it depends on who you talk to. Always get a bit confused about that. Missouri. Anyway, it is Amber. There is no question about how to pronounce that. Unless you want to you know, pronounce it like an American. And then she'd be Amber. Amber. Between my iPhone and small Braille with an uppercase B, excellent display, my mainstream laptop, Bluetooth headphones and Bluetooth keyboard, I have much more functionality than I ever did with my note taker I used in high school. All these things combined cost less money too. That being said, I understand why some people aren't comfortable with using these mainstream products. But if we're arguing whether mainstream products and a Braille display replace note-takers and can be just as convenient, the answer is absolutely yes. In junior high and high school, I used a Packmates. In college, I used a laptop and iPhone with Braille display. I've had much more success, convenience, and all-around positive experiences using the laptop and iPhone. Thank you so much, Amber. Appreciate that. Hey, Jonathan. This is Joe from Kentucky. Love the podcast. Um, so I wanted to comment on the camera kit question that you got. If it were me, I would spend the extra money and get the 3.0 camera kit because it's more powerful. So I have both of them. And the issue that you run into, especially like he's wanting to do a lot of it sounds like uh, connecting hard drives and connecting thumb drives. I never found a thumb drive even that would work with a 2.0, to be honest. The only thing I can really do with my 2.0, uh, the cheaper one, is use the Blue Yeti microphone. That's the only thing I found that it powers. Anything else, it doesn't. The 3.0 actually has a female lightning port on it, which you can plug your lightning cable from a wall into. So like you would connect your iPhone charger plug in the, the lightning cable, connect the female into this 3.0 camera kit, and then plug your USB-A in. That powers and charges your phone or iPad and also powers the device. So the things that you'll be able to do with the 3.0 kit is going to be so much better. I use a four terabyte external hard drive with mine and I'm able to copy data over. I use a file or an app called File Browser and it makes it very nice to just copy, cut, paste files from the iPhone or iPad to 
the drive and vice versa. That is incredibly handy. Thank you, Joe. So I will pick up one of these and connect my Western digital little portable hard drive to my iPhone. That sounds like a real way forward. Boy, this show costs me money. Hey, Jonathan, it's Maria and Lacey in Albany, New York. Hi, Maria. Things are definitely coming to a bit of a new normal here. My Instacart order, for example, it came in two hours from when I placed the order, which is so much better than the five to seven days that it was before. So either they've expanded capacity or they're just adapting to the new normal or both. And, uh... Things are settling to closer to a pre-COVID expectation there, which is good. Um, I do have to see in terms of Lacey's due for her physical in May, and I have to see if her vet is seeing patients for routine services, and uh, if so, how I would handle that, because they're doing a bit of a curbside where people are driving in with their cars and they're waiting outside while the vet staff comes and takes their pet and goes inside, does what they need to do, and then comes back out with the pet. So since I'd be taking an Uber or a Lyft, I wouldn't want to be paying for the driver to wait. So, you know, question of whether I just wait outside or if they would make an exception for me to wait in the lobby. So we will see. Um, we have been required here in New York for a while now to wear the uh, face coverings in public situations where the physical distancing isn't possible. So um, I definitely would be wearing one in that situation. So things coming to a bit of a, a new normal. And in terms of the state, um, we are, uh, our pause order, which was the strict, you know, lockdown, if you will, that's going to expire on the 15th of May. And then if regions have met certain requirements in terms of things like um, hospital capacity, uh, I'm sorry, well, yeah, hospital capacity, um, but also in terms of, you know, new COVID hospitalizations um, and deaths and also contact tracing and testing if they've met the requirements, which none of the regions have as of Monday. Uh, once a region's met those requirements, then they can uh, start a four-phased plan of reopening with each phase lasting a couple of weeks to, you know, facilitate data analysis to see if uh, if it really, you know, uh, causes the COVID infection rate to go up, then presumably it could be shut down and such. So uh, the four phases, the first one is things like construction, manufacturing and retail, uh, curbside retail. And the second one is uh, professional services like finance, real estate and things. Um, third one is r- restaurants. And fourth is um, entertainment venues. And of course, the businesses have to, in order to reopen, they have to have requirements in place for, you know, things like physical distancing and enhanced uh, sanitation and uh, having face masks uh, for a lot of person to person contact and such. So um, we've definitely been discussing a lot of reopening plans for our office um there there are definitely gonna be some changes uh my i guess we've uh put in uh they've put in i've learned today some new door handle coverings which are i guess easier to clean than the just metal painted ones that we have and um it'll be interesting what the new normal looks like because especially the my floor is the densest floor of the building so there i think will definitely um be some changes so um I don't know, I've enjoyed working from home too, but it'll be nice to give Lacey, a, you know, an actual regular destination to go to again with work. And so, I don't know, each each has its pros and cons, but I think we'll be doing a lot of, you know, more things remotely still even. Um, so that'll be good. You know, I hope we'll do some reflecting and on what lessons we can learn about, you know, workflow from 
from all of this uh, remote working. Um, I'm wondering what your thoughts are, speaking on the note-taker discussion versus uh, laptop or iPhone with Braille display. It, it just seems to keep going. There was a, uh, a workshop, a Zoom uh, workshop yesterday on the topic. I'm wondering what your thoughts are on the uh, L Braille dock for the uh, Focus 40 Blue 5th Gen, which as of this week is finally shipping in U.S. Um, I, I agree with you in terms of my own personal situation. I agree with your thoughts on the Android note takers. Uh, I haven't personally used a dedicated note taker since uh, 2011 when I um, stopped using the PacMate. Uh, I use now, I've used since then a Focus display. Now I'm using the, the Focus 40 Blue, the fifth gen um, with either my Windows laptop or my iPhone. And um, primarily when I'm running it that way, I'm controlling primarily the device from the display so that I minimize my hand movement between the devices. And I'm pretty happy with my setup. Um, but I'm wondering what you thought of the uh, L Braille concept. Um, it seems it seems interesting in some ways. You don't have the limitations of the Android note takers because you're running Windows. Uh, you have that all-in-one piece, which could be you know more portable and easier potentially to carry when traveling. And I'm guessing that maybe there's a greater battery life because there isn't a screen to be powered. Although I'm, I'm not sure on that. Um, and I mean, the, the specs for the new one are, you know, decent laptop specs with the 8 gigs of RAM and the um, i5 processor. Those are actually, my work laptop has that much of RAM and that kind of processor in terms of that um, core. And uh, an i5, uh, a bit more solid state storage on my work one. But, you know, again, with expanding it, with being able to expand with an SD card and such, um, you know, it seems, again, it's it's decent, it seems like. Um, but yet at the same time, you know, for the price, I think to myself, you know, a person can get a laptop that's way better <laughs> in terms of its specs. And also it's easier to swap that out when there are hardware improvements over time for a new laptop than it would be to upgrade that uh, L Braille dock. So wondering, uh, since you had the original one, or perhaps you still have it, <laughs> wondering what your thoughts are on the new version of the L Braille. Thanks and have a lovely day. Yes, I did have access to the original one, Maria, and was able to do some pretty neat things with the Elbrail. I put Studio Recorder on it and connected some uh, microphone equipment to the USB port. Now, I mean, that is sort of stuff you can use because you can obviously go out there and use Windows with it and do all kinds of things. I mean, using Microsoft Word on an Elbrail is pretty exciting. If you can get your head around the JAWS commands, of course, but even in those situations where it's easier, you can connect a Bluetooth or USB keyboard to the L Braille. So I do see the attraction. Like you, I'm just not sure if the cost would justify it for me, given that I like to update my laptop with newer specs and things like that. But I definitely understand why that's pretty cool. You know, one device to carry around. So that's one of the big things that a lot of people do like about the note-taker paradigm. One device, and there's no Bluetooth to worry about to get it talking to the Braille display. It's all just clipped in, but you have a full Windows 10 computer. Every six months, you'll be able to update this thing to the latest version of Windows 10. You can connect all sorts of accessories and peripherals run. You could do your audio production on it with Reaper. So yes, if one was going to go down the all-in-one blindness specific route and you have some money to spend on this i think the old braille of all of them and i think there are some other products too that are windows based that that makes a lot of sense to me rather than being stuck with a quickly obsoleting version of android daniel crone is listening he wants to know about the relative merits of recorders that have voice guidance 
and the Zoom F6. And I think the answer to this is that a recorder with voice guidance is obviously going to be a lot more convenient, but I'm not aware of any recorder that comes close to the audio quality of the Zoom F6. The preamps in it are very sweet. The 32-bit float recording is the really big deal for blind people. You know, that's the one that pushed me over the edge, particularly as someone with a hearing impairment. It is just so incredibly useful to have that. And if you want a demonstration of just why this is so significant and why it's such a big breakthrough for blind people, then I refer you once again to episode 35 of the Mosin at Large podcast, where Gary takes us through a really cool demonstration of uh, the ability to recover a recording, two recordings, in fact, that are highly dodgy, highly dodgy recordings, Gary, in both cases. Here's Dan Fry. As for this debate that you're facilitating, I don't think I started it. I didn't start it. Um, (laughs) And I think you'll largely agree. I don't think it really matters what type of access technology that blind people use. Mostly, there are tons of combinations that permit us to do things that we could never do before. I tend to think that those of you who are better technology users probably enjoy the iPhone and its accompanying equipment more than average folks do. It sounds clearly as though you can do more things more flexibly and more economically than those who use note takers or slate and styluses. I have an iPhone, a focus display, needing fixing due to a coffee spill. Oh my word, that would be heartbreaking. A note taker and several Windows computers. I find that each of these in their own ways are what I need in a particular given task. Thank you very much, Dan. Maria, by the way, mentioned that she uses her Braille display keyboard as much as possible to avoid moving her hand off one device. And of course, that is another really nice thing about using a Braille display with various other devices. Some of the newer Braille displays, like my Focus 40 fifth generation, you can pair up to six different devices. I think actually one USB and six Bluetooth devices. So with the one Braille display, you can sit there and flick between them. You can be answering an email on your laptop and then press a key and answering a text on your iPhone and then pressing another key and dealing with something that might be on your Apple TV. It's generous. So that is definitely another benefit of working with a Braille display in conjunction with other devices. Email from Aditya who says recently, I was doing a digital detox. Whoa, that's scary. While going through my old audiobook collection, I stumbled upon an audiobook. It's called The Blind Doctor. I have read this book about seven years back and was really moved after reading this magnificent audiobook. There cannot be a better time to listen to this marvel. This guy, Jacob, is an inspiration and a legend. I am pasting the description below. The Blind Doctor is the moving and powerful story of a blind man who fought ignorance and prejudice to become one of the most respected physicians in Chicago. Everyone who reads Dr. Jacob Bolton's story will learn that blindness is no barrier to a full life and great accomplishments. Thank you very much, uh, Eddie. I do know about Jacob Bolton, but I 
haven't read the book, so perhaps I need to rectify that. Jonathan, this is Roy from Little Rock. Thank you so much for your information about Zoom and about Backpack. I really do appreciate your sharing your knowledge. It's a great help to me. I'd like to comment a little bit about the discussion that you had with Bonnie and another listener regarding tipping. I can only comment about where I live. I don't know how the situation is elsewhere because I've never been elsewhere. But in the United States, restaurants don't pay a decent salary to waiters and waitresses. They should. They don't. And these people rely upon tips in order to make a decent living. And I say decent living, certainly not up in in my economic range, but they make a salary that they can survive on. So I feel responsible for tipping these people. I tip them anywhere from 15 to 30 percent, depending on how busy they are and the type of service which they provide. Many of the waitresses in this country are single mothers who have one or two children. And I love uh, children, and I feel responsible for them, and I can't help that. I taught children all my life, and I, I love children. And so I like to take care of people They might be single mothers, and I can't help it. I feel responsible for them. I'll tell you about an experience that I had about five years ago. I was in a restaurant, had pretty good service until the end when the waitress set a glass of beer down on the table, and it turned over and spilled on my pants. And she was just horrified and So in order to make her feel better about her mistake, I just told her it was okay. It was like peeing in your pants, except it was cold. And so uh, I tipped her as usual. She had provided good service. She'd made that one mistake. I'm glad I'm not penalized for the mistakes that I make. Good on you, Roy, as we say over here. Good on you. And, yeah, it's a very different culture. So here the the wages are um, – I mean, I'm not saying that waiting staff in New Zealand get paid megabucks. They don't, but um, I know they get paid uh, a minimum wage, which is a lot more generous. So it's a, it is a different culture and uh, economic system there. So thank you so much for articulating that so clearly. Hi, Jonathan. It's Frank here from Adelaide, South Australia. I recently discovered your podcast – And I'm really enjoying it. It's very informative and entertaining. Thank you. I just wanted to contribute my two cents worth in regards to a question from David regarding cryptocurrency wallets and their usability from a blind person's point of view. I have been a cryptocurrency enthusiast since about 2013. I've purchased a couple of the cryptocurrency hardware wallets and they are not accessible unless you have some usable vision. So instead, I use an iPhone app called Trust Crypto and Bitcoin Wallet. It's by Six Days LLC. This wallet is owned by Binance, one of the largest crypto trading platforms in the world, and has over 500 ratings of four and a half stars. 
and there is also an Android version. Binance also has an app that represents their full crypto trading website, and both apps are fully accessible with VoiceOver. I hope that helps someone. I am curious about something, he continues, if you don't mind me asking. When you read listeners' emails, are you reading them by using a Braille display? I never learned Braille, and I'm wondering if, at the age of 50, is it worth learning? Yes, I'm reading, and interestingly enough, I read my emails, the ones that have come in during the week, from my Braille display connected to my iPhone, and then when I've finished reading the email, I press the hotkey that's necessary to get me back into the window of all the software that I'm using to put the show together. So I would not be able to do this show in the way that I do without Braille. And that brings us to an email from John in Tasmania, who asks, with all of the advancement in technology, is Braille going to go away? I can tell you that I've now been around long enough to remember the 1980s when computers started to emerge. And people said exactly this, that now that these talking computers were coming along, people wouldn't need Braille. And a lot of sighted, quote, professionals, unquote, really did a lot of blind people of that generation an enormous disservice by essentially advancing that myth. And of course, the reverse has been the case. We have more Braille technology around than there's ever been. Braille is a bulky medium. So even if you have a pocket dictionary, it can be in 30-odd volumes. But if you have a Braille device of some kind, whether it be a note-taker or connected to another device, you can be walking around with many, many thousands of pages. So if anything, technology has given Braille a wonderful renaissance. Braille isn't going anywhere because literacy isn't going anywhere. It's kind of like saying now that sighted people have Audible and they have Siri, will people stop learning to read print? It's exactly the same. I mean, Braille is literacy. Braille is reading. Braille isn't going anywhere. Uh, Braille is, in fact, advancing. And one of the things I really love is to see those uh, kids at things like the Braille Challenge that the Braille Institute runs in California, where they have this national competition. The NFB also has a Braille competition called Braille Readers and Leaders. And it's just wonderful to see Braille advancing and thriving in these kids. It is more vibrant than ever. And we should all celebrate that because the, the idea of blind people being confined to illiteracy is just a, a tragic thing to contemplate. Hi, Jonathan. This is Terry Hedgecraft from Phoenix, Arizona. I uh, You interviewed me actually at CSUN a couple years ago. It was such a pleasure to meet you then. Uh, I've listened to you for years and years and years, even in, back in main menu days. I wanted to comment on the move speaker by Sonos. I have one and have had it for about a year and I absolutely love it. it it's a great speaker. It's quality sound and I'm not familiar with the play as far as we don't have that to compare it to, but it is very deep quality sound. So Bose has a similar looking speaker, shape very similar, but it's not portable. Uh, and I still say this Sonos Move is far superior to that in the sound. So highly recommend it. Oh, and there is no uh, audio jack. It's only Bluetooth 
and USB. Thank you, Terry. A Sonos Move, eh? Could be just the thing if you've got a kind of a patio, especially if you're heading towards a northern hemisphere summer and you want a Sonos device out there on the balcony or whatever to enjoy the parties, assuming there are parties to be enjoyed. Jim O'Sullivan, hello to you. He says, may I suggest clickandpost.com for Petra, who was asking about any kind of replacement for Apple's defunct, defunct, I tell you, cards app that was so accessible. Clickandpost.com. He says, this is a UK-based service. It has short descriptions of its cards, and it's very easy to use. Thank you very much, Jim. Clickandpost.com for those who want to post cards. Might be a bit late for Mother's Day, which it is in many parts of the world, but there you go. Jonathan, Nick Zamorelli here, contributing today with some thoughts about how, in my opinion, accessibility is slipping a little bit for those of us in the blind and sight-impaired community. Since we started distance learning, our last day with children was Friday, March 13th. We took the following week to prepare for distance learning, and then distance learning began on Monday, March 23rd, and will be in place for at least the remainder of this academic year and perhaps beyond. And if I'm being honest, not one day so far during this process have I been able to say at the end of the day, things went smoothly today. There has always been one problem or another related to accessibility. My most recent problem occurred yesterday when I was trying to do some videos for my fifth grade this time of year, we do a unit on Billy Joel. And as I'm recording this, today happens to be Billy Joel's 71st birthday. I had to do the video six times before it came out right. And the reason for that, or a large part of the reason for that, is that within Zoom, if you hit the keyboard command to pause recording, which is Alt plus P, JAWS will say resuming. Even if you're pausing, it'll say resuming. And then when you hit it again, it'll say resuming. So it's an accessibility glitch within Zoom. I hope they fix it quickly. Speaking of JAWS, I had a very disheartening tech experience recently with the VFO folks. The gentleman that I got was a very, very nice man. But one of the issues that I called him about was when the computer wakes up from sleep, it takes JAWS a while uh, to respond. So it might speak, but when you hit the control key, say, to interrupt speech, it will not interrupt speech. It just takes a while for JAWS to catch up with the fact that the uh, system is now awake and, you know, they need to work and play well together. And the only response that I got from the tech support person at VFO was, this has always been an issue with JAWS and probably always will be. Now, call me crazy, but that doesn't strike me as a very helpful explanation or solution to the problem. So I guess to sum it up, 
I'm feeling pretty ambivalent overall. There's a lot going on, Nick, and I'm sorry to hear that. It just can be very frustrating, and there's a lot of COVID-19 and, and, and other considerations, and we're having to do things differently. One constructive, hopefully, suggestion I can make is making sure that we use the right tool for the right task. So in my opinion, using Zoom for the recording might not be the best tool. I'm wondering whether the camera app that's built into Windows 10 and then making sure that you set that camera app to make videos of a low enough resolution to be uploaded to where they need to go might be a better option. And I say this because I've had direct experience of this. Sometimes I write uh, email to my team, which is spread out nationally around the country. And anyway, we're all working from home anyway. But sometimes just saying it and being visible is better. And in that situation, I use the Windows camera app on my phone. I also do have a pretty good Logitech camera with some cool autofocus type technology mounted here in the studio. And I know that when I'm sitting in front of the mixer at the right place, then the camera's got a really good view of me. And that gives me confidence because one of the things that I find challenging is publishing content whose quality I can't verify. Clearly, I can't tell that the picture's all right. Sometimes I actually do get someone to check. It could be Ira, it could be a family member to just make sure that my face is in the frame and also that the lighting is good. So sometimes, depending on where you're sitting, if you've got sun streaming through the window, it can make your face look kind of lopsided because one side of your face is more lit than the other. So I, I tend for serious video stuff to draw the curtains and then turn on the light in here. But I do find that the Windows 10 camera app is a really good way of recording video content. I would also encourage you to report that issue to Zoom. And in my experience, their accessibility uh, support is first class. They do take fixing those things really seriously. And I don't think this is a JAWS issue because a lot of what is spoken by Zoom is sent by Zoom itself. They, they send events to any screen reader. Regarding that business of turning your computer off from standby, uh, I've seen this too, and I don't know whether other screen readers have the problem or not. It could be to do with various factors. It could be the, the, the keyboard driver could be sound related, but yes, I have seen it. And I've just got into the habit now of first using standby as little as possible and either shutting down completely or just turning off all the hibernation features if you're in a secure environment. But second, when I do wake it up, I just do a Windows JAWS key with F4 that usually loads it, but sometimes you, you can run JAWS again. And that's pretty easy to do because you can run JAWS again by going to the Windows R dialog and typing JAWS followed by the version number without a space. So if you're running JAWS 2020, you can just do you know, unload JAWS and then go to Windows R and type JAWS 2020 and wake enter. I actually also have a shortcut key on my desktop. So I've got Control-Alt-J set to load JAWS. But I mean, yes, in an ideal world, it shouldn't be necessary. But sometimes these things are due to just limitations of various drivers that any screen reader company doesn't have control over. Just coming back to Frank's question about Braille, and one of the things I forgot I didn't really cover was his question about, you know, I'm 50 years old, is it worth me learning it? I think it is, yes. I know there are quite a few programs specifically for 
adult Braille learners. You may have to really work on it to get speed, but even if you get to a point where you can identify certain tins by sticking labels on them and things like that, you know, maybe you're not going to read War and Peace tomorrow, but Braille is an incredibly valuable tool for so many situations. So yeah, I'd encourage you to take a look. I'm sure there's a lot of support out there. Hadley.edu has all sorts of wonderful training resources, and I think they may well have a remote Braille-type correspondence thing. haven't looked into that for a long time, but that might be an option as well. Gary O'Donoghue, who, for those who don't know, is a uh, journalist at the BBC, and you can, if you listen to the World Service and various other uh, BBC entities, you can sometimes hear Gary popping up. And he says, simply couldn't do my job Without Braille, no chance. And that's right. I feel the same way. Obviously, reading all of these messages and things like that, it is such an important tool in our lives. Jonathan Mosen, Mosen at Large Podcast. Here's Kelby Carlson. Hi, Jonathan. I thought I'd chime in, ding, with a few thoughts on the relevance and utility of note takers nowadays. I was a heavy note taker user. Oh, and then what happened? Did you go low carb and got lighter? Oh, I see. I, no, I get it now. Okay, sorry. I was a heavy note taker user until about three years ago. What drew me away from the note taker were two things. First, Voice Dream Reader made it much easier to read all kinds of books, particularly academic PDFs with footnotes. Second, the requirements of graduate school for writing papers were not manageable on my note-taker, and this forced me to become much more comfortable with Word. I still own a Braille Note Apex and use it for reading certain things, as well as a display for my iPhone. I did get to recently try a Braille Note Touch, and my experience with it was appalling. A caveat, though, as this was not the Brownote Touch Plus, but the previous model. A few complaints. First, the Keynote and Eloquence voices were both removed. Bluetooth connectivity to the iPhone was very poor. Using it as a display, particularly typing in Braille, was unbearably slow. And yay for you with the uppercase B as well, Kelby. Uh, Everybody who does that gets a big shout-out from me. And most bafflingly of all, he continues, it couldn't successfully open large plain text files. Additionally, the BRF reader did not speak, which meant I was limited to daisy books on Bookshare and could not do word searches. I haven't been able to try any of the other current note-takers, but this certainly discouraged me from using them in a work setting. I will say that battery life is still a concern. I use an iPhone 7 that I've had for around three years, and the battery probably needs replacing. But if I tried to use my phone heavily during a workday without charging it, I would predict that it would last four or five hours at the most. On the other hand, the versatility of the iPhone combined with a braille display and a good PC where needed is worth enough that even battery life is a problem that can be dealt with one way or another. Thank you, Kelby. I appreciate that. 
And I encourage you to splurge when you have the chance on a new iPhone. If you are able to get yourself an iPhone, especially 11 Pro Max, your battery problems will go away. It is a beast with the battery, that thing. A beast, I tell you. Hey, Jonathan, it's Mike Fair. Mike? And, uh, yeah, what a week. <laughs> I've really slid over to the mainstream. Uh, I think we're much better off using mainstream products as if we can. Sometimes what I really have come to understand with, with the iOS devices in particular is that it really is a leap and some people just are always going to struggle with touchscreen input. It, it just seems to be a really different method for blind people to do things, different enough that there are going to be some people who would be better off you know, finding other methodologies to uh, to do what they want to do. I've never really had, other beyond the Eureka A4, which is going way, way back, uh, that was really my last uh, product that was uh, not mainstream. Uh, since that point, it's been all Windows computers and, uh, and now the iPhone doing so much uh, and effectively almost replacing my computer pretty much. It certainly does bring the cost down. Uh, although braille displays have to uh, to get a bit cheaper, I think, but I think that'll happen. You know, we're at the point where a lot is is really changing in this landscape in terms of of cost for braille, uh, for refreshable braille. So, hope that continues and and we see some really affordable options soon uh, in that space. But uh, yeah, it's a different kind of uh, week now. I've had my first bit of uh, been affected by this uh, COVID bug more because now uh, one of my hearing aids is broken and it's the cord connecting, like it's just the connection and the cord. So really all it would have to be, I'd need, if the offices were open, I could just take it in and a minute later I'd have a working, they'd fix it and I'd have a working hearing aid back. Uh, unfortunately, until the office is open, I'm kind of stuck. So I'm going to have to get creative. One hearing aid thankfully still works, and I can use the AirPod Live Listen feature to kind of supplement that. And between those two things, hopefully I'll be uh, you know, certainly able to cope around here and don't anticipate having to go out anywhere for the next while. So in theory, I should be fine. But, but what a time to, uh, <laughs> to have that happen. Thank you very much, Mike. And that is my nightmare scenario in the situation, I have to say. The idea that my hearing aids stop working and I can't get them repaired because I'm really dependent on them. I do have my old Phonax still, so I, I should be able to resort to that. But that is a real worry. And it's one of those things that really should be taken into account in a situation like this. Hank Abma, welcome to you. He says, until recently, I'd ignored the 32-bit float recording thing as just another few dBs added. However, now I know better, and it's really impressive what can be done with these files. Yeah, 32-bit float recording is a beautiful thing. It is a rockin' thing. Mosin at Large Podcast. Big changes are coming to Sonos. As I've said previously here on the show, there's a new operating system for Sonos being released. It's called S2. S2 will support a new app, and it's going to be released on the 8th of June US time. So they have given us a release date now. That app will be known just as Sonos, like the current one is. The current one will then become known as S1 Controller. 
You don't have to upgrade your Sonos devices to S2 if you don't want to, but Sonos is announcing a range of exciting new features that will be coming, including high-resolution audio, which will be great, and the ability to save room groups. I'm really pleased about both of these features, but especially pleased about the room groups. For me, this will be particularly handy with alarms. In normal times, when COVID-19 is not lurking about, Bonnie and I have an alarm which wakes us up at 6.15 every weekday morning. And it's set to use our master bedroom speaker, which is a Play 5, because obviously that's where we are when the alarm goes off. But we wanted to activate a wide range of Sonos devices because the alarm plays a morning current affairs show that we listen to. And we want to hear that as we wander around Mosin Towers getting ready for work. You can set the alarms feature on the current Sonos controller to include grouped rooms, but you can't presently save the group. And that means that sometimes I forget to group all the rooms that I want at the end of the day in the way we want them for the morning. So being able to save groups of rooms is going to be a wonderful addition. Some older Sonos products aren't going to be compatible with S2. It's possible to separate your system into S1 and S2 groups, but you won't be able to group an S1 device with an S2 device once you've upgraded that device to S2. You can check on the Sonos website to see if you have any devices that aren't S2 compatible. Two days after the release of the prerequisite app for some of this new gear, we then start seeing new hardware from Sonos. Some of it is a refresh of existing products, and there'll be no need for people who currently have the products they replace to upgrade. For example, there is a new Sonos Sub and a new version of the Play 5, which is simply now called the Sonos 5. Neither of these products has any features that are so compelling that you would want to upgrade from a current sub or a Play 5 Generation 2. They have some new wireless radios and faster processors, but uh, no sound changes, it appears. Interestingly, the new Sonos 5 does not include any microphone technology so that you can use voice assistance with it. I find that an extraordinary omission, given that the Sonos 1 does have this feature, and it seems to have come standard in most new Sonos products. But undoubtedly the most exciting announcement from Sonos is their new soundbar, which is called the Arc. Now the Arc replaces the Playbar, which was released in 2013, and the Playbase has also been discontinued. So in the soundbar range, you're going to have the Arc and the Sonos Beam that's designed for smaller rooms. The Arc costs 799 US dollars, so it's coming in at a full 100 US dollars more than the Play Bar's price. I've got to tell you, you're going to need a big living room for this Kahuna. It is 45 inches wide, that's 114 centimeters, and 10 inches wider than the Play Bar is. It weighs in at a whopping 13.8 pounds, that's 6.26 kilograms. It has a more rounded design than its predecessor and if you want to you can mount it on the wall. In fact Sonos has announced mounts for a range of its products. You used to have to go to third parties for that but you'll be able to mount the arc on the wall and there is a sensor in the device 
that compensates for the mounting so that the base isn't unduly resonant when it's leaning against the wall. Now forget the Beatles and their famous 4,000 holes in Blackburn, Lancashire. The grill of the Ark is one large piece of curved plastic with 76,000 individual holes. I presume that someone has counted them. The huge news is that the Ark supports Dolby Atmos at last. Now, for those not familiar, this is a surround sound technology that has sound coming from above you as well as around you. It adds amazing reality to movies and TV shows recorded using this technology. It does have to be encoded in Atmos. It's just not something that happens. You have to have uh, an Atmos recording. And a lot of iTunes movies recently have been re-released with Atmos compatibility. And the remix of Abbey Road last year, of course, even included a Dolby Atmos version. It's important to have a sense of perspective about this, though. The Ark is going to be fantastic, but it's still a sound bar. It's highly unlikely that you would get the full immersive effect of Atmos in the way you would if you'd bought a home theatre system with speakers in the ceiling. There's a lot of cool stuff under the hood alongside the amplifiers. The Arc contains eight woofers and three tweeters. The Play Bar has just six midwoofers and three tweeters. This means that even when you're not listening to Atmos content, you're going to get much better sound, particularly bass response. The center channel focuses on dialogue clarity, so you don't miss what's being said in a movie or a TV show. The left and right channels, along with the surround and up-firing height speakers, all increase the sense of spaciousness and immersion that comes out of the arc, according to Sonos. And they say that it has kept music playback in mind when designing the product, and it says it delivers neutral audio with an ultra-wide sound stage, thanks to those eight woofers and three tweeters. The Arc can play PCM Stereo, Dolby Digital 5.1, Dolby Digital Plus, and Dolby Atmos, of course. DTS and multi-channel PCM audio aren't supported. The lack of DTS is particularly frustrating and, frankly, mystifying. Currently, with my play bar, I have to play DTS audio recordings on the Xbox, which converts it to a format that Sonos can work with. DTS is a very common user request, and it's a huge shame that Sonos hasn't coughed up for the license to include it. You can, of course, build on your system by adding rear surrounds and a sub. If you just want to swap out your play bar, or for that matter your beam, for an arc, in your existing Sonos 5.1 setup, that's going to work just fine. When you add a sub, the Arc, of course, doesn't have to worry about lower frequencies because, man, the sub will be thumping with them. So it then focuses on giving crisper highs and mids. The Arc supports Sonos TruePlay technology, but you'll need an iOS app to set that up. What you do is you walk around the room with your iPhone, waving it around while the Arc plays a sound, and it gets a feel for the acoustics of your room and adjusts itself accordingly. The Arc also supports Alexa and Google Assistant, but it can only be set to support one service at any time. But you can change back and forth as often as you want. Although we're definitely an Alexa household, 
there is a good chance that if we had an Arc, we would use Google Home with it because we have an Android TV. So it should be a very slick experience to even turn the TV on and change channels and all kinds of things like that right from the soundbar. It has a four far field mic array, which Sonos says ensures it picks up your voice easily from a distance, even when you're cranking up the volume. The Arc supports Apple AirPlay 2 technology, and that means that you can beam material straight from your iPhone to it, even with a simple Siri command. There's an HDMI port, which is a welcome upgrade from the old optical port on the Play Bar. There's also an Ethernet port, but of course the device is also Wi-Fi enabled. So, will I be getting a Sonos Arc on launch day? You may be surprised to learn that the answer is... Unfortunately, no. I was really looking forward to it. But yet again, a Sonos announcement is causing a lot of confusion. As I said, there's only one HDMI port on the Arc, and it doesn't support HDMI pass-through. This means that the typical use case for the Arc is that you would connect it using the HDMI port on the Arc and cable it to the TV's audio return channel HDMI port. Then you'd connect everything else that you want to use with the Arc to the other HDMI ports on your TV. If your smart TV is relatively new and supports Dolby Atmos, then you should be able to play content using the built-in apps on your smart TV, like Netflix and Amazon Prime, and get Dolby Atmos coming from those apps. The problem is, of course, as many people know, many smartphone apps aren't accessible, even on TVs that have a screen reader. So most people are going to want to use something external that's more accessible. If you plug a device like an Amazon Fire Stick into one of the HDMI ports on your TV and you have a device that supports Dolby Atmos, you should be golden. But it's important to understand that there are actually two forms of Dolby Atmos. One is a compressed version of Atmos used by many streaming services like Netflix. Now, this form of Atmos is often used by streaming services because not everyone has the bandwidth to play the full uncompressed Atmos audio stream. If you're familiar with more traditional audio, think of it like the fact that Mushroom FM doesn't stream to you in uncompressed wave format. Many people won't have the bandwidth to play it. In most use cases, then, if you have an ARC connected to the audio return channel HDMI port on your TV, you will get this compressed form of Atmos, and it should sound pretty good, kind of like a high-quality MP3 file. A lot of people can't hear the difference. So what happens if you want to play the full uncompressed Dolby Atmos stream, such as what you might find on a Blu-ray disc? Well, most soundbars handle this by offering at least two HDMI ports, and this means that you plug your player into an HDMI input, and then your TV plugs into an HDMI output of the soundbar. Sonos doesn't do it that way and has just one HDMI import. And this means that they don't have to license all the various video codecs, which they would have to do if they were required to send output back to the TV in the same way that most receivers do, because obviously they'd need to send video as well as audio, or all the sighted people wouldn't be able to see what's on the screen. 
To get uncompressed Atmos on the Ark, you're going to have to have a very new and expensive TV, which supports a new feature called EARC, or Enhanced Audio Return Channel. Now, EARC offers oodles of bandwidth, so a TV can send lossless Dolby Atmos to the Sonos Arc. EARC TVs only started to come out last year in 2019, and we bought our TV back in 2017, so it's absolutely way too old to support EARC, and the native apps don't have Dolby Atmos. Now, I knew all this before the Sonos Arc was announced, and I was relaxed about it because most of the content that we stream comes from the Apple TV. And here we have the potential problem and the confusion. There is a suggestion from some very audio-savvy, reliable people that Apple only sends the lossless Dolby Atmos, meaning that you would need an EARC port on your TV to make Dolby Atmos content play from the Apple TV 4K on the Arc. So even when it's not truly lossless, there's a strong suggestion that Apple's re-encoding the stream that way. Now, if that's true, then the only choices that I would have as an Apple TV 4K user who wants to get the Dolby Atmos on my Sonos Arc would be to buy a new, very expensive TV with the EARC port in it, something that I'm not really keen on doing since we don't use our TV very much and the TV we've got works perfectly well for us. <laughs> Thank you very much. Or find some sort of intermediary receiver or splitter of some kind. That could be a possibility. To be clear, there's no doubt you would still be able to play 5.1 content with the Apple TV 4K and the Arc, but I can do that already with my play bar. Atmos was my reason for upgrading. We do have a unique use case possibility here, which is that because we just have two blind people in the house, we could potentially plug the Apple TV 4K directly into the Arc, but that would mean that we wouldn't be able to use the TV without swapping cables backwards and forwards. And it would also mean that if we had members of the family over to watch a movie with us, that's not going to be viable either. So we wouldn't all be able to sit around with them seeing the pictures and us enjoying the Dolby Atmos content. So that's not really a runner either. Some people say that the Apple TV will send compressed Atmos content via the traditional ARC, the audio return channel, just fine. But I'm not prepared to take the risk until I know for certain. That's especially the case because, wait, there's more. The length of the arc is far too long for our current TV cabinet at Mosin Towers. We would have to buy a new one, and they're not cheap. I'm keen on the idea of Dolby Atmos and the upgrade for that, but not so keen that I'd be prepared to buy the Arc, a brand new expensive TV and a new TV cabinet. So I'm going to wait it out. I'm going to wait until the Arc gets into people's hands and find out what's what. I am disappointed. I wish that Sonos had included HDMI pass-through, which is very common, or a second HDMI port. Sometimes they make really curious decisions, and it is starting to test my patience. Mosin at Large Podcast! Hi, Jonathan. This is Ibrahim from Boston. Uh, great show so far. I was wondering um, if you could talk about 
accessible VPN software on Windows and iOS and give a couple of recommendations. I boy say thanks and continue the awesome work. Thank you. Hi, Abraham. Good to hear from you in sunny Boston. I have not found a perfect VPN client for Windows. One I have switched to that does seem to work quite well, not perfectly, but it's sort of doable with a lot of struggle, is called Surfshark. And the reason why I picked Surfshark is that it does seem to work quite well with certain streaming content that I like to listen to that other VPNs do not work with anymore because a lot of streaming providers have enhanced their geo-blocking measures and they seem to have an ability now. I don't know whether it's based on IP address range or what it might be, but a lot of streaming providers now seem to have an ability to block a lot of these uh, providers. But Surfshark is working okay. The iOS app is great. You'll be frustrated by the Windows app but you know if you hang on in there hopefully you'll have some luck and just before we head to bonnie here's an email from rebecca she says i like the new iphone se the phone is much more responsive than my old se when using touch id and voiceover however i wish the u.s carriers would stop using the traditional sim cards I always have to get assistance inserting the card, even though the phone came with a SIM tool. Well, you might want to go back. I think I might have done some podcasts on this uh, when upgrading iPhones, because it's absolutely doable for a blind person to do this. But I would recommend doing it on a dining room table or somewhere where you've got quite a lot of surface. Um, I have done it in airplanes before. And believe me, that's fun. Taking the little SIM out of the iPhone and putting a new one in when I've been, say, going to a country where I want to use a local carrier for cost reasons. And uh, doing that kind of surgery on your iPhone in that kind of space. Oh, my word. It's living on the edge. She says, I can't get wireless charging to work, even though I bought an Apple-supported charging mat. Sounds like something you should have a chat to Apple support about and just find out where the problem might lie there. Do you have to put the phone on the mat in a certain position to get charging to work? The induction coil is on the back of the iPhone. And so, yes, you have to you have to lie it flat and with the middle of the iPhone sort of right on the center of the charger. And if the charger's plugged in, you should hear the familiar Apple charging sound, and off you go. Rebecca continues, I went to a medical appointment earlier in May, and I can tell you that the medical staff are asking patients to wear a mask. Telehealth or virtual visits are an option, but my doctor expected me to give them my vitals and I don't have a talking BP machine. COVID-19 cases still continue to rise in Florida, which is starting to scare me given the fact that Florida's governor has started opening up the state again. This is why I will always wear a mask if going out in public now. Both the FDA and CDC provide guidelines on how to make a mask and which type of materials may provide better protection. The masks are designed to protect the public against the wearer's germs, but what isn't clear to me is just how much protection the wearer gets. The only consistent message we are receiving is to wash our hands frequently and practice social distancing. 
I love food. Oh, what a non sequitur. But it is a new paragraph. Uh, But I refuse to go out to eat until Florida's COVID-19 cases drop. In the US, people could still shop and order delivery items. And I cannot imagine being a blind person in New Zealand without the ability to get things delivered. How did you manage? I love your show. Thank you, Rebecca. Well, just to be clear, you could get supermarket uh, material delivered. You just couldn't get prepared food delivered. So not only could you not get it delivered, you couldn't pick it up as well. And the idea behind that is to just reduce the number of people out there potentially transmitting stuff. So we would get our groceries delivered from various sources and then do an old-fashioned thing called cooking. Marvellous. Sometimes you just have to get retro, you know. Here is the incredible Bonnie Mosin. Hello. I, I guess I should separate the stereo again yeah, or we'll get complaints. Express VPN, says Gary O'Donoghue, works well and is very accessible. I wonder if it unblocks the streaming content I want unblocked, though. Um, mm. I think I tried that one and it didn't. But these things change all the time. These things change all the time. What has been happening in your world? Do you think we will be going to level number four? Uh, number two, rather? No. You don't? Mm, I don't know. It, it it depends on who you listen to. It's hard to know because I sort of got the feeling last week during the press conference they were preparing us not to be disappointed. Yes, and that they but might But I don't know that that was what they were intending to do. I th- I, and that they might potentially be phasing it in. I think they'll have to because, I mean, if you're going to open businesses, they need time to restock. They need time to get ready. So mm. they'll need a week at least to do that. People are prepared. They've been told what they can and can't do when we move. I, I think if if we go, it'll be Wednesday night, you know, effectively Thursday morning. I don't know. It'll be interesting because I was talking to some friends yesterday because we have a Zoom catch-up every Saturday. And a Zoom catch-up. Zoom catch-up. They said they're seeing so much traffic that it's just it's like a normal weekday now. I don't know where they're all going or what they're all doing. But Th- this is this is the trouble that a lot of everywhere. countries are having getting people to stay the course. I mean, luckily, we intervened so quickly that we don't have this mass community transmission thing going on. And because people are seeing those case numbers every day when they're published and we're seeing numbers like zero, zero, two, two, you know, I mean, it's very low and they know where the two cases come from all the time. So you can understand why people's resolve is starting to flag a little bit. Mm-hmm. One of the things that we were talking about is blind people participating in video conference technology. Yeah. I have heard it said by some people that essentially if we can't see them, they shouldn't see us. I guess that's <laughs> yeah, the summary. I've seen comments uh, on that on Facebook. Yeah, why should blind people use video? And I, I think, honestly, that is so incredibly counterproductive because we live in a world where the majority of people are sighted. And well, it. If they're wanting sighted people to to make websites accessible, if they're wanting them to do this, do that, do other things, then we should meet them halfway. And this is very important to sighted people to be able to see each other. I mean, there's not a lot you can see on Zoom sometimes. It depends. But, yeah, I mean, I think people that are doing that are being a bit childish, honestly. Ooh, that's quite a pejorative term. 
I, I just think I think they might be misguided. Yeah. <laughs> I I think it really is important to to blend in with our workmates. If you're in a Zoom conference specifically that's blindness related, I get that. I, in the end, the video just is a needless transmission of bandwidth. But what I'm talking about is if you're working with a whole bunch of colleagues mm-hmm. and everybody else has got their video on and you don't because you say, oh, I'm a blind person, I don't need to have my video on, what message really does that send? I don't understand the logic. One of the things that people have said to me when I've raised this is, well, we don't know how to use the camera. We don't feel confident around the camera. And I tell you what – One of the things that this whole COVID-19 thing has really brought to the fore is the lack of training many people have in accessing all these wonderful tools that we now have. There's there's a systemic, I'm almost prepared to say there's a systemic failure there. Why is it that so many people are struggling? For blind people or sighted people or both? Blind people, well... I guess to be fair, there are some side of people struggling. It's it's funny because I do have one friend that has an 8.30 Zoom conference meeting every morning, and she's sighted. And for whatever reason, the managers decided we won't turn on our videos at that time. And if that's a collective decision, that's a collect. The others, the video has to be on, but the first one in the morning, you can you can elect to have your video off. I guess because some people are in PJs. Yeah, so and that's why the they're water. doing it. But I thought it was kind of funny. She's a government worker, but um, <laughs> I don't know what that means. But anyway, but sometimes now one thing that I realized is my video sometimes doesn't automatically come on, so I have to turn it on. And I have started to say, guys, if you can't see me, say something. You know, it's, well, that, that's a setting in Zoom, and that's that a you setting. Can, yeah, and yeah. I have changed it, but I didn't realize it for a while. And also, when you tab around or or flick around the Zoom dialogue, depending on what operating system you're using, mm-hmm. there's a button there that says either turn camera on yeah. or turn camera off, depending on the sector and I you think, know. I think some blind people who have never seen don't quite understand, because I have had sight in the past, and we didn't have Zoom. We did have cameras. Well, that was careless of you to lose it, wasn't it? What? The sign. Yeah, like Lady Bracknell. Yeah. No. Anyway. anyway. But – you know, I, I did – and pictures were important to me. Photos were important. I liked mm. looking at them. I liked the camera. So I get why they need that sort of visual connection with yeah, people. And yeah. I, think I mean, that sight is a really dominant sense. It's a very dominant yeah. sense. And, yeah. and I think sometimes blind people may feel left out a bit on Zoom because there is a lot of – Sort of, ah, there you are. and this, But I mean, yesterday, for example, I was on this Zoom call and we have one of our, it's Romance Writers of New Zealand, our, our local chapter. And we have one member who, you can do a lot of strange things with your avatar, your profile on Zoom. You can change Zoom background. your Zoom background. Yeah, yeah. So you can do whatever, you know, there's all sorts of things you can do. There's some that are naturally built into it. Mine is the Golden Gate Bridge. Because that was only one that looked remotely interesting <laughs> of the two that were on there. But you can download from something called Snapcam and you can put your own pictures. So you could be on the Starship Enterprise. I have a friend that sits on the bridge of the Starship Enterprise. You can do all kinds of things. I'm looking for a Game of Thrones one where I come in on the Iron oh Throne. But you can do all kinds of stuff. And so he is constantly changing himself. So he was a cucumber. He was an avocado. He, he was, was a, a cucumber? He Yes. Right. I don't right know. Then. Yeah. Okay, then. 
was a he was a bearded lady. Mm. You know, he sometimes comes in as a supermodel, and and you know, it's just it's crazy. And it was constant, and we're like Fred, Fred, and I'm like, what's he doing now? And so they would describe it to me. So yeah, I think, yeah. Well, yes, we have um, this thing where we go through and do the quiz. We do it on on Teams rather than Zoom, mm-hmm. but sometimes they take pictures of the paper. In the paper that are of interest, and they hold them up to the camera, but they always describe them. Yeah, and and you know you can there's there are some teachable moments there, but I think that's right. As somebody who's never seen, when I guess it was the N eighty six that I really started thinking about this in the context of the KNFB reader, and I thought you know I really got to understand how objects and the camera relate to one another. How you know the larger the object, the further away you have to be, and there are just some fundamental things like that. I We'll put in another pitch for Judy Dixon's book called mm-hmm. Get the Picture. I'm not sure if it's still in the MBP archive. I hope it is because it really talks about cameras and using your your iPhone for pictures and that kind of thing. Maybe they'll make that one free for now. They've been making some stuff free during this whole pandemic. Can I read another email? Because mm-hmm. you might have something to offer on this one. Okay. My name is Aparna and I am writing to you from Rapier, India. I hope you and your family have been doing well under the circumstances. Thank you, you and yours as well. It looks like New Zealand has been coping relatively well so far. Prime Minister Ardern seems to be doing a wonderful job. She certainly is. I've been listening to the Mosin at Large podcast since you started and The Blind Side before that. And it's a pleasure listening to you talk about such a wide array of topics. As it happens, the 50 or so days we've been under lockdown, yeah, they've locked down 1.3 billion people over there. The podcast has been more helpful than it usually is. It's kept me engaged while I do the dishes. This means I'm not necessarily itching to get them done. Before that, a good bit of my enthusiasm for assistive tech came from listening to you talk about it. I especially loved the unboxings on the podcasts. Anyway, I'm writing to you because I'd like your opinion on something I've been conflicted about for a while, if you could spare some time. I'm due to get a new laptop in the coming month, which might be tricky with the lockdown situation, but I'm thinking we'll cross that bridge when we get to it. I'm currently using an Asus ZenBook UX305 that has 256 gigabytes of storage and an Intel Core X5 dual-core processor. It's been great so far, but it's beginning to slow down considerably after almost four years of extensive use. I was thinking I'd like to explore the Mac ecosystem but I don't think I'm ready to, or even if I'd eventually want to make a complete switch in the foreseeable future. Too deeply entrenched in Windows for that. Besides, I'm not sure I'd want to work without JAWS, or at least eloquence in some form. So I was looking at my options, and using VMware Fusion on a MacBook looks quite appealing from what I've read about it so far. Barring that, I wouldn't mind boot camp either, but I'd prefer VMware 
if I can manage to set it up. My use case is about 70% reading slash writing slash text editing. I'm a university student right now doing a master's degree and 30% browsing the web, doing rare bits of audio editing, that kind of thing. It's important for me to have a machine that's got good response time without significant delays. Would you say a MacBook running Windows on a virtual machine would be a good choice in this regard? I'm currently majorly focused on the MacBook Air, primarily because it doesn't have the touch bar. Would you say a MacBook Pro would handle two simultaneous operating systems better? If that is the case, what do people generally do about not having access to the physical function keys while running Windows with JAWS uh, or any other screen reader? But if I do end up picking up the Air rather than the Pro, I recall you speaking well of the 2020 model with the Magic Keyboard and 256 gigabytes of storage on the podcast. What specifications would you recommend I look at? I'm also looking at the newer ZenBook models, which would be familiar territory in a manner of speaking. Those would also get the job done. It's not essential that I get a Mac necessarily. It's largely curiosity and good reviews I've heard that have got me interested in the Mac. I would really appreciate it if you could tell me what you think about it. Thank you very much for the email. I used to have a Mac until 2016. I purchased a Mac in 2012. Uh, It was a MacBook Air, and then I moved to a MacBook Pro, and I gladly got out of the Mac ecosystem in 2016. VMware Fusion I would not recommend any audio work under VMware Fusion. If you want to, though, you can use the Mac OS to do audio work. You could use Repack very successfully under Mac OS, and you'll get good responsiveness. None of the latency issues that you would get if you tried to do audio on VMware Fusion. There was, at least for a while, a problem with using the caps lock key in VMware Fusion as a modifier for the JAWS key. That might have been resolved. I used uh, Carabina and I think it was called Sail or something like that um, to, to get this done. And then when the new operating system from 2016 came out, you couldn't do that anymore. And people said, I'll just use the Grave Accent key and Sharp keys and things. But I didn't want to do that because I actually have a lot of JAWS scripts that use the Grave Accent key. So... That and the move to the touch bar and the move to the butterfly keyboard and various other things. And also the fact that browsing the web, in my view, in Safari is nowhere near as polished an experience as doing it with JAWS and Windows. I just found that I didn't have a need for the Mac anymore and I've never looked back. Now, that said, Ulysses is pretty attractive because I love Ulysses on iOS. So I sort of thought, oh, I could get a Mac and use Ulysses, which I'm really interested in. And also, there are certain audio apps like Rogue Amoeba's tools that are great. Uh, Mail's okay, but I, I think overall I prefer Outlook, other than the fact that Outlook on Windows doesn't have a unified inbox, which in 2020 is kind of kivy. So it'll be a big change for you. And some people like adventure, just wanting to try something new. You used a Mac for... Yeah, I think it I think it depends on what why you want it. It's a very nice looking machine. I think I was more attractive to kind of the aesthetics of it than anything else. I mean, I had it in boot camp 
which doesn't work anymore. Is that right? They've yeah, I, th- I believe you can still boot camp the still Mac. Boot but camp. what that means but is that you 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 make a choice. You're either in Windows mm-hmm. or you're in Mac OS. Yeah, but not both. Whereas with VMware, you can switch between operating systems. systems. You just you just command tab between them. Yeah, and I guess my my question is, what's the point? You know, I mean, unless you're just really geeky or you're just really have time to really want to play with something, why boot camp a Mac? You know, unless you really have to. I mean, what's what's kind of the purpose in it, is it? And I guess it just really comes down to what you're doing and what you want to do with it. I have an HP Spectre that I'm I'm very happy with. It sort of reminds me of the Mac and it's it's aesthetic good looks. There's something, and I don't even know how to describe it. There's something ungodly sexy about a MacBook. I don't yes, know I mean, that's, what that, it yeah, is. They're great hardware. I they're picking sexy. Up on it. Yeah, mm-hmm. but but the thing is, that gap has also declined. I think one yeah. thing we have to thank the Mac for <laughs> is that they really encourage they realized others it, to yeah. lift their game and, the and come up with nice it. looking gear. Um, I mean, I would actually dispute that. I mean, there are there are probably obviously there are people who are happy with their Macs, but oh, yeah. I've I've heard from a lot of blind people who got into a Mac because they love their iPhone, yeah, and then they got their Mac and they say, oh my gosh, uh, this is not the polished experience that I got on my iPhone. I mean, for another thing, Braille is just really bad on the Mac. Yeah, <laughs> um, you often find that the Mac is is saying busy, busy. It sounds like oh, yeah. talking to a guide dog, especially when you're in Safari and certain other applications. Yeah, Safari was not fun. I really believe in efficiency, that if you're going to be using an application all day long, it's great to script it. One of the things I really like about JAWS is that every second counts when you're trying to be as productive as a sighted person. So you've got the JAWS scripting functionality to script the apps. So I don't know. I, I just I just personally don't. I wouldn't recommend it. I've seen too many university students who have gotten them for whatever reason. These are blind students. And they find that they cannot function in the university. Like one person that I know of was complaining constantly about the university's website being inaccessible. I went on to the particular university's website to do whatever it was they were trying to do with JAWS, and there was no problem. So, you know, was it the way they were operating in Safari? Did they didn't have the tech? And I'm certainly no tech expert at all. You know, no, I'm certainly not Jonathan. But it does display differently if you're using different kinds of browsers, websites will. So, and they weren't able to do different things that they needed to do for class, like formatting documents, because they didn't have it boot camped. So it was better to use Windows for something yeah. and JAWS. So I think if you were given a Mac, I'm not saying it's not usable. It absolutely is. But if you were, if you have the power to make a decision, which is the best way to go, I definitely think a Windows um, machine, especially if you're a proficient JAWS user, mm-hmm. is the way to go. For example, the degree of access that JAWS offers in Microsoft Word, and you mentioned that you're doing a lot of writing at the moment, is just vastly superior to the way you can work with Microsoft Word on a Mac. I mean, actually, for a long time, you couldn't work with Microsoft Mac on the Word. You couldn't work with Microsoft Word on the Mac at all. And now you can. So it's great that Microsoft's made it accessible. And you do have Ulysses. You can export from Ulysses to Word formats. You could do that. I just wonder... I don't think you'd be gaining anything, yeah. really. And they're expensive. Um, 
I mean, they are. I don't know. You know, I mean, obviously, you're going to pay a lot for a decent window machine, too. So maybe the price is the same. But I'm really happy with my HD Spectre that I had because it, it kind of looks like the MacBook Air a bit. Gary is chiming in here on this subject. He says all sorts of drawbacks with the Mac, but I reckon it kills PCs when it comes to the seamless use of audio in conjunction with external devices, etc. Interesting. Certainly you can do some really nice things in the Mac like aggregate devices, which you really can't without all sorts of jiggery pokery on Windows. And uh, also on Windows, sometimes the devices can get a bit confused. So, yeah, I, I take that point. Yeah, so it really depends on your use case. We like the HP Spectres. So we've got, uh, I've got an HP Spectre folio. Bonnie's got, what's yours called? I think it's the, the latest HP Spectre 360. I think that's what it's called. And they're lovely machines and they're really good. Other than the weird audio issue that you have to yes, get around with Silenzio, which, which is just really annoying. It's very annoying. Um, they're, they're pretty good. Mosin at Large Podcast. Here's email from Cullen Gallagher, who says, I am tuned in to the Mosin Explosion and have some comments. First on the Note Taker debate, I have a Brown Note Touch Plus 18 cell and love it. I won it. As an original Braille note touch at the NFB convention in 2016, I'm still shocked about that. I decided to upgrade it to the Touch Plus, and I'm glad I did. It's a very responsive device. However, I have been intrigued by the Orbit Reader 40 announced at CSUN. The price of it is amazing, and I'm beginning to consider getting it. I do see the advantage of using an iPhone with a Braille display with a capital B, good on you, and am really considering moving in that direction. This would also be my first 40-cell display, which I feel would be an upgrade. It is great that new Braille display technologies like the Orbit Reader and Braille Me are being created. It is exciting to see these lower-cost options coming on to the market. Yeah, as long as we're not fobbed off with technology that perhaps might not be the best technology. So in the case of the Orbit, they are very noisy. And if you are using it in a study situation, people may find the noise of the display popping up its dots a bit distracting. So if you get a chance to just audition that, then it would be wise. But I do think that anything that gets Braille in the hands of more people is an absolutely wonderful thing to be applauded. And Cullen continues, regarding the new 13-inch MacBook Pro, I am amazed, amazed at the fact that Apple has doubled the storage and RAM for basically the same price. When I got my 2016 MacBook Pro, about three years ago, that's about the time I bailed out. Um, actually, I got a 2016 MacBook Pro, didn't I? Yeah, and then I then I bailed out. I paid $2,600 to have it custom built with 16 gigabytes of RAM and a one terabyte SSD. Woo! With this year's update, that same configuration is just under $2,000. That really amazed me. I know I am in the minority here, but if I do upgrade in the future, I will personally miss the butterfly keyboard. Whoop! See, takes all kinds. For some reason, I feel that I type a lot faster on it compared to the older scissors keyboard. 
Let's just uh, have a look at WWDC because that's exciting. This is Apple's Worldwide Developers Conference, and Apple has announced that they're going to go a bit later this year and that they're going to have WWDC on the 22nd of June. Now, this is where we learn about what is coming in iOS 14, and there are all sorts of uh, discussions about what you might uh, get in iOS 14. One of the things that really intrigues me is there's some suggestion that Apple is going to relax its position on default apps. And I think this is probably being forced on them by people getting a little bit anxious about antitrust things. And the CEO of Spotify in particular has been very vocal about this. So it might be possible that in iOS 14, you will be able to choose, say, Outlook as your default email client. Some people do prefer Microsoft Outlook as their default email client on iOS or their email client of choice. But whenever you get mail to links in Safari, it's always going to use the built-in mail app. You can't sort of avoid setting accounts up and using that app unless you're using your phone in pretty limited ways. Similarly, many people now are rocking Microsoft Edge, which is a great browser on all sorts of platforms. And there's a good iOS implementation of the new Microsoft Edge, but you can't select it as your default browser. So when you're in an email app and you um, choose a link, you'll generally be taken to that link in Safari and, and other places too. So this could be a really big change in iOS 14 that we'll have to look forward to. If you are a user of the Overcast app, and a lot of people who listen to Mosin at Large use the Overcast app, we can see this because we can see the client that you're listening with. Don't worry, we don't know who you are, but um, we do we do see how many people come in with various clients. It's great to see the number of people with Castro steadily increasing. The Apple Podcasts app is still very big. Overcast will be the second most popular iOS app. And last time I checked, still the most popular way that people listen to Mosin at Large is the Victor Stream, which kind of makes me sad because I don't think the Victor Stream has yet implemented the ability to skip between sections of this podcast, which is something we spend ages doing when we produce the podcast every week to make it convenient for people. But maybe they'll add it sometime. I hope they do. And maybe they have, and I don't know about it since I don't own one. Anyway, Overcast has come out with a big update. If you're an Apple Watch cellular user, what used to happen is that you would have to sync your podcasts from your phone to your watch when the watch was on charge. It would take a lot of time. And if your phone wasn't on charge when your watch was, it could be quite a battery drain. Now the podcasts come down from overcast servers on Wi-Fi if your watch has access to Wi-Fi or cellular if it doesn't. So that is a very significant update for watch users of Overcast. Also, another technology news that caught my attention this week in what has been a very busy week, I see Tile has inked a deal with the Intel people. Now, Tile, if you're not familiar, is that technology where you can buy all sorts of little devices to attach to things. I have these Tile stickers that I put on some things like remote controls I need to find. And you can also have Tiles that attach to key rings and affix to different things. And you can find your objects, essentially. Very, very handy, and I love it. And, of course, Apple's coming out with a competitor soon called Apple Tags, and we may see the announcement of that 
at WWDC, so Tile is trying to continue to be relevant, prepare for the Apple onslaught. So they're embedding Tile into some new Intel computers. And we expect that by 2021, Tile technology will be in a lot of new laptops and you'll be able to just use it to locate any lost laptop. It's pretty cool technology. And if you're out of Bluetooth range of your lost device, they kind of crowdsource it in a really slick, elegant kind of way. Hi, Jonathan, says Daniel Jacob. I noticed a couple of weeks ago, after an app update, you can no longer perform voice searches with Google Chrome. Have you experienced the same thing? Any idea why Google would have chosen to remove voice search from Google Chrome? What operating system are we talking about? Just curious as a subject line, so I don't know what operating system you're talking about. So no, I, I'm actually using Microsoft Edge most of the time now, and I'm quite happy about that. Maybe somebody else can chime in if they've seen something similar. And Petra wants to know, what is this, what, what, what is this butterfly keyboard people are talking about? Can you describe it? It's basically a very flat keyboard. Even the arrow keys don't really have any pronounced feel to them. They're, 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 not, they're not inverted in any way. So it's just a very, very flat keyboard. Extraordinary. And apart from a few people, uh, it didn't go down terribly well and they were hugely unreliable. Here's Adi Kushma who says, Hi, Jonathan. I would like to thank you for your great work on the Mosin at Large podcast. It is something I look forward to listening to every single week. Here in Israel, we finally started opening up our lockdown, although we really do not have any serious leadership. And we are at the same position as the United States in this regard, in my opinion. I am happy that we can at least start going back to work and that the number of cases is minimized. A number of episodes ago, you were talking about the possibility of having third-party TTS voices on iOS. Yeah, hopefully we're getting that on iOS 14, which I am also waiting for, like many users around the world. You mentioned Eloquence. Well, unfortunately, Code Factory had to stop developing Eloquence for Android, and it was removed from the Play Store due to 64-bit requirements introduced by Google. So that means even for iOS users, most likely there will be no Eloquence unless someone pays extra high money to port Eloquence to 64-bit. I would personally start a kickstart fund or, or something to do it. Who would contribute? Where, where, where can we go? I am using Eloquence, says Adi, quite a bit myself, although I have to use Hebrew and Russian with other synthesizers since I speak these languages and localize in those languages. But there is nothing compared to eloquence, in my opinion. And whenever I use English, which is what I use the most on my PC, I try to stick with it. I also have one question for you. I know that you are using a mechanical keyboard. I'm also looking for one since I have to type a lot when doing development, localization and project management. And a reliable keyboard is critical for me. Which one do you recommend? Um, I've got a Steel Series keyboard, and I think it has cherry switches, but I don't claim to be an expert. I farmed this one out to the peeps 
to the peeps. But uh, I believe it's a steel series with cherry switches. And yeah, I love my mechanical keyboard. I have one at home and one at my office if I ever get back there. To contribute to Mosin at Large, you can email Jonathan, that's J-O-N-A-T-H-A-N, at mushroomfm.com by writing something down or attaching an audio file. Or you can call our listener line. It's a U.S. number, 864-60-MOSIN. That's 864-606-6736. Mosin at Large.